Our sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Acts 16 and verse 1. We're going to try to do uh, about 40 verses this morning. And uh, so that's exciting. Um, and uh, you may think uh, that I'm speaking quickly. Um, the problem that's not true. You're just listening too slowly. Um, and so you'll have to listen a little quickly this morning. I trust you will be able to do so. You'll find Acts 16 on page 784 in the Pew Bible. If you'd like to use that Bible, I'll be preaching from a slightly different translation. I would encourage you, by the way, to have the Bible in your lap. I know the words are up on the screen, but they won't be during the sermon. And we're just going to be working verse by verse, all of these verses, all the way through. We'll be constantly referring back to the text. And I think you'll find it much easier to follow and get engaged in the sermon if you actually have the Scripture open in front of you. So I would encourage you to do so. Acts chapter 16 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities and delivered to them the observance, the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Fergie and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his, all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come out themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them. And departed. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, incredible story of your faithfulness to your people. We thank you that you, as you have told us through our Lord, will build your church. Help us to see your work through this text and in our lives as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on April 14th in 1912 when the Titanic struck an iceberg in the ice fields of the North Atlantic. You know, of course, that the Titanic was said to be an unsinkable ship with its double hull and 16 watertight compartments. Unfortunately for the Titanic and its passengers, it did not strike the iceberg head on, but it was a glancing blow. And as the Titanic moved along the iceberg, the, the iceberg sliced through its hull. In fact, the widest hole the iceberg made in this ship was a quarter of an inch wide, but the hole was 300 feet long. And so that night, on April 15, 1912, the Titanic sank into those icy waters in the North Atlantic, claiming 1,500 lives. And the tragedy is even more pronounced when we understand that there was a vessel 20 miles away, the Californian. The Californian could have easily been there in, in a matter of minutes and saved most, if not all, of the passengers. If, so, if only someone had been listening to the distress signal. You see, the radio had been turned off, and the radio operator took a nap while he was on duty. The result was that the help would come too late for most, that their the rescuer, their would-be rescuer, would never hear their cry. And we see another cry for help here in Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. A cry for help across the Aegean Sea, a cry from Europe which was in this day darkened by sin and idolatry. 
This cry was heard and heeded as we see in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying to us, come over to Macedonia and help us. It was like a a spiritual SOS, like a, a flare shot into the night sky. And the apostles saw and heard and knew it was God's plan for him to form a rescue party and go to Europe to proclaim the gospel and to build the church. He'll eventually, in fact, immediately make it to Philippi. In fact, what we plan to do as a church is to begin the study through the book of Philippians, which Paul would write to this church about 10 years later. I think the church in Philippi was perhaps Paul's favorite church, as we will see as we work our way through this wonderful, incredible book. In fact, uh, except perhaps for the Gospel of Luke, I would say no book of the Bible has impacted me more than the book of Philippians. And so I'm very excited and eager to be able to study it with you and to explore that what Paul describes in this book is that we are a people for Christ. And that all of our life is impacted by our relationship with Christ. And so we will see in this book that our joy and our ambition and our contentment and our dreams and our hopes and what we do with our money and what we think about and how we treat each other is all affected. It's all impacted by belonging to Jesus. You'll see Jesus throughout this book and discover that he's involved in every way. But what I thought we would do before we study the book of Philippians, we actually see how the church started, which is why we're here in Acts chapter 16. And as we saw in this text, I think you could uh, rightly uh, just uh, realize how how wonderful and incredible these events are. And in fact, when I look at these uh, many different events as to what's going on, the one kind of banner that flies over this passage is Christ's declaration in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I read Acts 16 and that's just echoing in the background. I will build my church, Christ says. I will build my church, he says. And so I think it would be fun to go back 10 years before Paul wrote this letter and see how Christ built this church. This people for Christ was created by Christ. This church was made by him. I, I hope this will be a great encouragement for you and for us as God's church as well. Now, I know you have your notes sheet there, and you have six points there. And for the sake of time, I'm afraid we're just going to skip point one. I know you're very distraught about that, but we're just going to jump down to point two, and, um, and we're going to pick it up in verse six. I hope that's okay. We see, first of all, that God directs the work. Look at verse... Well, before, even before you look at verse 6, I just, we're, of course, jumping into the middle of a story. You realize Paul is on what we call a second missionary trip. In Acts 13, there's a church in Antioch, had five pastors. Two of them are Paul and Barnabas. The church decided to send these guys out on a church planning mission, which they did. And it was very successful as they traveled all around what we would call today Turkey. And there they planted church after church after church. They called it Asia Minor. Well, they returned to Antioch and they resumed their pastoring at that church. But they're kind of sitting around thinking, you know what? Let's go back and visit those churches. Let's actually go and strengthen the churches that we started. And so Paul and Barnabas decided to do this. They get in a silly fight. They go separate ways. And Paul takes this man named Silas. And he'll eventually team up with Timothy and Luke as well. It's this four-man mission team as they go and at least attempt to strengthen the churches. But you see, it seems that God has a different plan for him as we see God directing this work. Look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Fergia and Galatia. Interesting, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And so they get into Turkey and, they, and they're coming in from the east and they want to go west. 
And somehow the Spirit forbids them from going west. Well, they can't go south because that's the Mediterranean Sea, so they turn north. So, okay, we're not supposed to go west, we'll go north, as we see in verse 7. And when they come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So now twice the Spirit of God has stopped them, has, has forbidden them, if you will, from pre- preaching the Word of God, from strengthening the church. This is absolutely amazing. I mean, Jesus, did He not say in the Great Commission, Go! And now the Holy Spirit comes and says, No! And I wonder if they're thinking, Okay, you guys got to talk to each other and figure this out. You know, I think we're just supposed to be doing what, what we're supposed to do. In fact, I would love to know how it is the Spirit actually stopped them from doing this. I don't know if Paul opened his mouth and nothing came out. Perhaps verse 6, you could read it that way. But somehow he was very compelled by the Spirit that he's not allowed to go west and he's not allowed to go north. And if he goes south, he goes into the ocean. If he goes back east, he goes back home. And so what is he tries to thread a needle? He goes northwest. So we see in verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. But unfortunately, Troas is at the northwest corner of Turkey. It's a dead end. You can't go anywhere once you're there. It's just water all around or you could go home. And I don't know, in frustration or despair, they, they, they're in Troas now, not sure what to do. And perhaps they go to bed. For We see in verse 9, God then speaks to them. And a vision appeared to Paul and night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging and saying, come over to Macedonia and, and help us. This vision to come and help them. Macedonia will be Europe. It's what we call Greece today. They would call Macedonia back then. And it seems that if God is, the Spirit wasn't stopping them from preaching. He just wanted to preach in a specific place. He wanted the gospel in Europe. He wanted the church to be built in Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea and Corinth. He wanted Paul to take that gospel there. There's a woman in Philippi named Lydia who God has prepared for the news of Jesus Christ. And God wants someone to be there. He will build his church and he is committed to do so. And so he sends them off into Macedonia, into Europe. God blocks them closes doors in order to direct them. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Has God ever frustrated your plans? Has he ever blocked the direction that you wanted to go? Has he ever put um, doors being locked in front of you that you cannot go the place where you even thought God wanted you to go? I think he does this because he wants us to do perhaps something different. Well, many of you know I have, I have a couple degrees in political science. I have a master's degree from uh, Duke University where I take out and I continue to um, be reminded of that degree because I pay for it every month, even uh, many years after that. Um, I studied uh, how international economic interdependence affects national security decisions. And I thought I was, by God's leadership, going to go to D.C., believe it or not, and I was going to work there in, in probably some of the fields that some of you work in, and I was going to be a cause for Christ. And I prayed about this, and I sought counsel for this, and I studied hard to get into graduate school for this, and I approached this, and I, and I worked to get these degrees, and then God closed doors, and he put up roadblocks. And now I'm your pastor. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, and praise the Lord. But you, can you imagine working in D.C.? Oh, my God, that sounds awful, right? Um, so we praise the Lord that, that, see, what God has done is not, see, God will direct us, won't he? Because he wants us to do something different. He'll keep us from doing something because he wants us to do something better. William Carey, the father of modern missions, 
wanted to go to Polynesia. God said no. He ended up in India, impacting India for Christ. Adonai Judson, who followed Kerry, wanted to go to India. God said no. He ended up evangelizing Burma. David Livingston, the, the man who had a tremendous impact for the gospel in Africa, first wanted to go to China. And God said no. See, not that they get it, got it wrong. It's that God directed their steps for their good and for his glory. That seems what he's doing with this mission team. He seems to be directing them. But the, the confusing thing to me, and I don't know if it is to you, why, why not just give them the vision before they left Antioch? Right? I mean, wh- why wait so long to tell them where the destination is? Why, why do they have to stop here and then stop there? Paul would have probably traveled over 500 miles. You think about it, what a waste of time and resources. And then finally he gets the vision. Then finally... God lays out the plan. But why not just lay out the plan when they're still at home? And God says, okay, guys, I'm going to send you to Macedonia. I want you to go to Philippi. Why do they have to go this way and then stop, and then that way and then stop, and over here and over there? I don't know if God has ever done this for you. I mean, we we want to know the destination, don't we? we? We're constantly praying for that. We want to know where we're going to end up. We want to know what school we're going to go to. Or Some of you college students want to know what job you should take or where God will leave you, what decisions to make. And we, we realize that not all those answers are found in the Bible. Like, you, I want to know who, who I'm supposed to marry. Right? She's not in here. I mean, her name's not in here. I mean, maybe it might be in here, but you're not sure which one, right? And we think, well, if I could just have a, a Macedonian vision. Right? If, if, a Macedonian woman who's, you know, hi, I'm Sally. You're going to marry me in two years. And we think, oh, that would be wonderful. We praise the Lord if God would give us that direction. But he did not for Paul and Silas. And he quite often does not do it for you and I. And so why, I think is the question. Why the circuitous route? Why all the dead ends? I'm left to conclude that it's because the destination may not be as important to God as it is to you and I. I wonder if it's the journey that God is interested in. I wonder if it's the process in which he is working in us. I wonder if why we journey with the uncertainty for our future that we create intimacy with him and walk by faith with him. And maybe that's more important than where we'll end up. Don't you think God is working in Paul and Silas throughout this process? Don't you think he's strengthening their faith? I think we get caught up so much in in just wanting everything to be clear. We want certainty. and We may be missing the entire point. Some of you know I, I've had uh, my house on the market down south for over a year. Um, and, and it continues to be on the market. And I, I would very much like my house to be sold. Um, I think one day, I hope, it will be sold. But I, I wonder if, if God, before this process, he, he gave me a vision a, a year ago. And if you were to say to me, Stephen, listen, your house is going to be sold in 19 months from today. And it's going to be sold for X amount of dollars. I would probably receive that information. I probably wouldn't be too happy about it. I'd rather be sold a little bit sooner than that. But I'd probably think, okay, all right. Well, at least I know when it's going to happen. I could plan for that. And, and, you know, I certainly would stop praying about it. I'll tell you that. Certainly be a lot easier on me, wouldn't it, if I had that information? Some of you think, well, if I just had the information, how is this disease going to work out? I would like to know the end result. Where am I going to go in five years? How am I going to pay for retirement? I would like to know the destination. God give you that information. You think it would be a lot easier. But the question is, why would it be easier? 
I think about it for myself is I, you know, I kind of fantasize about this. God, give me this vision. Just let me know when it's going to be sold. I'm convinced that it would be easier for me because my faith is weak. Because I do not trust God like I ought to. Why is it not enough for me that God says, I am in control and I love you, son. And I promise to work all things together for your glory. Now walk with me. Walk with me when life is uncertain for you, but not for me. You know, I think we spend so much time praying about our circumstances, don't we? Don't we? 95% of our prayers are about our circumstances. Change this, do this, change this, do this. Perhaps we should spend some time praying about ourselves. Maybe God would not just change our circumstances, but he would change us. Maybe that's what he's trying to do in Paul and Silas's life. Maybe he's trying to do it in your life. I don't know what is in, happening in your life. It may be a m- money issue or a health issue or a relationship issue. I think the point is not just to get to the destination, but it's to grow during the journey. I think God is more concerned than getting you someplace. He's actually more concerned with making you become someone. Perhaps he's doing this in Paul and Silas. I like what they do when they keep getting blocked. They keep obeying, right? They go this way. God says, no. Okay, I'll go this way. God says, no. Okay, I'll go this way. Is that no time? Paul just says, well, I just give up. I'm just going to sit down, right? I'm I'm just going home if that's the way you're going to be, God. No, he keeps obeying, right? So we may not know the future, but we keep walking. And what we do when we walk, God directs. Like we want to sit down and say, okay, God, now you direct me. You guide me. And I don't think God works that way. I think we start walking in obedience and God says, while you walk, I will make your path straight. I will actually guide you while you're living in obedience to me. But if you're not walking, he can't make your path straight because you're not going anywhere. So do what God has called you to do through his word and he will, I trust, guide you as he does Paul and Silas. We see in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We see God here is guiding Paul and Silas to build his church in Philippi. It's number two, God opens hearts. Look in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district um, of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And so he will set sail across the Aegean Sea. He will land in a port city. He will walk eight miles inland to a town called Philippi, which is a Roman colony. What that means is that it would be like being in Rome. There'd be Roman architecture. There'd be Roman dress. They would speak Latin and not Greek, which would be the, the common language of the kingdom uh, at this time. It would be like, if you didn't know better, you'd be like you're in Rome. It'd be like a place that Paul had never been before. And, and it's important as we'll see the story works its way out. And so there they are in Philippi. And what Paul generally does when he goes into a town is he looks for a synagogue to preach the gospel. But evidently there is no synagogue because we find him in verse 13 out by a river. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, uh, outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. It would take 10 men to make a, 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. Evidently, there were not 10 Jewish men in Philippi. Otherwise, there would be a synagogue. Perhaps there's no Jewish men at all because all he finds out there by this place of prayer are these women who are gathered together there to pray. One woman in particular God wants him to meet, according to verse 14. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
we see that two things about Lydia here. One, that she's wealthy. She would sell purple uh, clothing, which is very expensive that day. Uh, purple dye would be created from mollusks. It would take 8,000 mollusks to make one gram of purple dye. And so it was very expensive. Emperors would wear purple clothing and senators and the very wealthy. And so we know that Lydia is a very wealthy businesswoman. In fact, she will have a house full of uh, servants and a house so large that she's able to host four missionaries there in her house. We also see secondly about her that she's a worshiper of God. Most likely she's a Gentile who's abandoned the Gentile idolatry and pagantry and is, has committed herself to the God as he has revealed himself through the Old Testament, through the Old Scriptures. And, and there she is out by the river praying, studying God's word, trying to get to the bottom of all of it. And who comes to speak to her but this missionary named Paul. And he walks to her and speaks the word to her. And we see the result as we read the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She believed in Jesus. She put her faith in this Jesus in which Paul proclaimed. And, and the Bible not only tells us that, it also tells us how she did that. In case you think it's because she's smart or holy or because Paul is a powerful preacher, it's none of that. It's because God in his grace opened her heart so that she can believe. He allowed her, gave her the ability to put trust in this Jesus This, I think, is what Jesus meant when he talked about being born again, that God will cause us to be born again. And and we do in response, we place faith in him. There are other women there at the river that do not believe. But Lydia believes because God opened her heart to believe. This is a work of God. I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon, he once told a story. He said, I heard of a man who once went to chapel to hear the singing. And as soon as the minister began to preach, he put his fingers in his ears and would not listen. I'm not suggesting you do that, by the way. Um, But by and by, some tiny insect settled on his face so that he was obliged to take, take one finger out of his ear to brush it away. Just then the pastor said, He that hath ears, let him hear. The man listened, and God at that moment opened his heart to believe in Christ. Lydia's heart was opened by God so that she might believe. If you believe in Jesus this morning, it is because God has opened your heart so that you might put your trust in him. No one comes to the Lord for whom God does not open their heart. And God has done that for us out of his great grace that we might believe, that we might be part of his church. And God is doing this here in Philippi. He is building his church in Philippi. You see the response in verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, perhaps her servants, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so she's baptized and then her home becomes the first church building there in Europe. The first church in Europe. There has Lydia uh, there and her servants and Paul as their pastor. And God builds his church as he has promised he would do so. But he's not going to stop there, is he? In fact, he will move on to another woman involved into a, in a lucrative business. But this business seems to be somewhat demonic. So we consider thirdly, God liberates the enslaved. Look in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so here's a a girl who unfortunately is in the terrible place of being a slave. And she's not only a slave, but she's been demonized. A demon has some kind of control over her. 
The, the literal language says that she had the spirit of the python, which is interesting. It may mean that it, there, these guys who owned her were part of the Apollo cult, which would be associated with the python. And so she had a spirit of a python in her. And it's a terrible image, isn't it? This, this suffocating demon in her life. And, and she not only was exploited by this demon, but by her owners as well, who used her fortune telling to make themselves rich. Well, you see in verse 17, she spies Paul and Silas and um, begins to follow them. As we read, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's so interesting, isn't it? That she sees Paul and Silas and says, These guys are with God. You should listen to them. They're telling you how to be saved, which is an interesting testimony for a demon to make, isn't it? And we're not quite sure why why this demon is doing this, but we do know whenever Jesus encountered a demon, the demon will be the first to recognize who he truly was. You are the son of God, they would say, and they just shout it out. And I don't know if this demon is, is trying to undermine Paul and Silas's ministry with his unholy alliance, perhaps, trying to discredit them, but we do know that Paul doesn't care for it much, for we read in verse 18, and she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. He liberated her as God does. Now, we don't know what happened to her after this. The Bible doesn't say. But many commentators have suggested by the way that, Paul, that Luke is lining up these stories, that she perhaps also placed her faith in Christ. That she trusted the Lord due to this great gratitude. We know that the church largely grew in this day amongst the slave population. And so perhaps it would be very likely for her to put her faith in Christ. And if so, you now have the church is growing, isn't it? You now have a wealthy businesswoman and a formerly demonized slave girl. Which sounds like a pretty exciting church, doesn't it? Right? I mean, that's, that, there's a lot going on in that church. She hopefully came to Christ as God continues to build her, his church. But if she came to Christ, we're very clear that her owners did not. For we see, fourthly, that God orchestrates events as we look in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. See, the spirit not only exited this girl, but so did their, their means of making money. That exited as well. And they were not pleased with this at all. And so to have great greed, they grabbed these guys and they bring them to the marketplace. In verse 20, we see um, the the mob forming. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. You notice their accusation has nothing to do with money, right? Right? They, they disguise their greed with this racism. These men are Jews. They're doing things that we don't like around here. This is things we're not supposed to do as a Roman colony. We shouldn't be doing the things that they're saying. And so they disguise their greed as this national pride and they begin to work up this lynch mob. So we, as we see uh, in verse 22, and the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to be beat with rods. Can you imagine what that'd be like being surrounded by a mob and having your clothes torn from you? And there's a mass of people coming at you with rod after rod from one direction to another, just being beat to the ground. I trust that Paul and Silas fell naked there in the fetal position as they were just stomped upon and beat. One commentator says that this was a common um, punishment 
It would result in lacerated backs, broken ribs and vertebrae, internal bleeding, and damaged organs. Uh, They were hurting. And as if that were not enough, verse 23 says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. He did a good job, for we see in verse 24, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. He would put them in the very center of the prison, the maximum security wing. They actually call this uh, the hole. And it would be a filthy place, a place where no light would be let in, a, a, a place um, where, where there'd be vermin scurrying about. Um, and you can just imagine what that would be like. Try to put yourself in that place. In fact, not only are they put in prison, but their feet are put in stocks. These would be wooden beams that they would fasten around their feet or their ankles, which mean they would not be allowed to lie down without tearing open the wounds on their back. They are not going to sleep this night. They are stripped and they are beaten. They are imprisoned in a dark cell with no light, lice and rats and disease and excrement all around them. And I would not blame them, I don't think, and I trust you would not as well, if they not, did not begin to question what God was doing. You do remember it was God who led them to Philippi, right? very directly, that God had brought them to this place. Isn't God in this? I, I wonder, whatever happened to the safest place to be is the middle of God's will? You won't find that verse in the Bible. In fact, quite often it seems to be the exact opposite. Being in God's will often brings difficulty and challenge, even pain and hardship. And so there they are, in the middle of this jail, as midnight approaches. I wonder what you would do if you were there, what I would do. I wonder if I would nurse my wounds or demand justice or plot my revenge. I wonder if I would shout obscenities or shake my fist at God that he would allow this to happen to me when I'm serving him. You notice what they did. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Now we get that, right? We understand praying. You're in prison. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You're going to be praying. But what's extraordinary is the next words. And singing hymns to God. They were praising him. They were worshiping God. There from the middle of that prison, the prison walls echoed with the newly composed hymns that the church was writing. Broken bones and lacerated backs and a future uncertain. And they there in this prison proclaim the majesties of God. It's interesting to me, by the way, that it's not until midnight that they begin to sing. I don't think they are in prison at midnight. It seems like this happened during the day. And so I trust that they were there for a while. They had perhaps sat there in stunned silence in disbelief that God had brought them to this place. Maybe they spoke silently to God and pleaded for help. Maybe they confessed their fears to one another as the church there in that prison supported each other. But sometime around midnight, they were completely surrendered to the difficult providence of God And they sang to him. They praised him. I wonder about you and me. Maybe some are here this morning and you're in your midnight hour. And there is pain or illness or terrible sickness in your body. 
Or maybe the trouble is relational. A lost one. Unreconciliation with a loved one. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's isolation, abandonment. Maybe you're not certain what tomorrow will bring. I wonder, in the midst of that midnight hour, do you sing praises to God? Do you worship Him even in that difficult time, in that hardship? Charles Spurgeon once said, anyone can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the mature singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to be read by. I very much appreciate the ministry of Richard Wormbrand. Many of you know who was the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs, who spent 14 years in secret prison during uh, the communist occupation of Romania for being a pastor. Three of those years he spent in solitary confinement where he didn't see a single human person or converse with anyone for three years. He had four vertebrae smashed during his imprisonment, and they either cut or burned 18 holes into his body in order to break him. He would write, they could not defeat me. Alone in my cell, cold and hungry and in rags, I danced for joy every night. Before he was in prison, he led a man to Christ who he would meet in that prison. This man had six children and a wife, perhaps he would never see again, who were undoubtedly struggling without him. And Richard Wormbrand was somewhat torn because he led this man to Christ, but now look at the predicament in which he is in. And he actually said to this man, have you any resentment against me that I have brought you to Christ? And the man responded, I have no words to express my thankfulness that you have brought me to the wonderful Savior. I would have it no other way. I wonder if Christ means that much to us, that we would give up everything for him and even be able to have joy in the midst of it. You see, it's easy to love God when everything's going well, but the problem is everything doesn't go well. Sometimes the bottom falls out, doesn't it? And we're left looking around thinking, what is going on here? Isn't my father in charge of my life? Why is this happening? Will you not do something? Will you not help me here? Are you paying attention to me here? And we tend to get mad or perhaps desperate, but rarely do we ever think maybe this is a good time to praise him, to worship him as Paul and Silas did. In fact, Paul would write to the Philippian church and he would say in Philippians 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice always. You think that's not very realistic, Paul. Don't you know my life? He knows your life and so much more. And he writes that we are to rejoice. We're we're not just to grit our teeth and endure trials. God wants us to rejoice in them. And I think, how far am I from this truth? I don't even like to be inconvenienced. I don't even, I don't even like to be irritated. I don't even like it when you, you don't realize green means go. Right? Let alone in prison. He said, well, of course, there's a difference between happiness and joy, isn't there? Happiness is a delight in circumstances. It's related to happenings. That's where we get the word happiness. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances. It is a deep assurance that all is well because Christ is my God. And I know people think, well, you just don't know the problems I'm facing right now, Stephen, and I, and I, and I don't. Uh, but I, I would tell you, 
from God's word that singing God's praise has nothing to do with your circumstances. He says, rejoice in the Lord, not, not rejoice in your circumstances. Don't get this wrong. Paul and Silas are not praising God because they like prison or they think that even they'll be let out tomorrow. They're praising God because prison doesn't matter to them. They have Christ. They have Christ. He can't take that from them. And so we shall sing to his praises because he has demonstrated his love for us, not in what's happening to me today, but because what he did with Jesus on the cross while they were yet sinners. And so you will not conquer their joy. We will sing praises to him. And I don't want to minimize your problems. I know that people have pain, but I'm telling you that no matter what pain you have, the sovereign king who loves you holds your life in his hands and he will never leave you without a song to sing to him. He has died and he has risen and he has claimed you as his own and he will use all the circumstances in your life for your good and the good of others. As we read on in verse 25, you notice, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so here they are, they're singing these praises in prison and their people are taking notice because they don't hear amazing grace from the inner prison often. They're not hearing mighty fortresses are God. And so they're listening, right? They have no place to go. They're a captive audience, right? Quite literally. And so they're listening. This is strange. It gets their attention. And they're drawn into this, aren't they? And the reality is, is that your trials and hardships are a megaphone for your praise. They amplify your faith and your worship of the Lord. The prisoners are here are listening because they're praising even in the midst of hardship, right? You win the lottery and you get $200 million and you go on television and you say, I just want to praise Jesus. And everybody looks at you and thinks, you're a jerk, right? Of course you're praising Jesus. You got $200 million. Where's my money, right? The guy catches the touchdown in the end zone. He grabs it. And what does he do? He points to heaven. Praise Jesus. Of course you're praising Jesus. You just scored the touchdown. But who gets cancer and says, praise Jesus for who he is? Not for the cancer, but for who drops the touchdown and then points to heaven and says, I'm going to praise Jesus anyways. And people think, what is going on with him? And that gets people's attention. It's a megaphone for your praise when you worship God when life is hard and God is having his glory resound in that prison as the prisoners listen. You see, God is interested in being glorified and building his kingdom. And evidently he wanted glory in that jail. So he said, I need two guys to go in that prison and begin to proclaim my majesty and my glory. It may be that God puts hardship in our life and uncertainty in our life because he wants you to witness to him to those who are around you in the midst of hardship it may be that the the person who doesn't understand how to drive in a traffic signal is put in front of me so that i could witness to my love for jesus to the person sitting next to me It may be that the broken appliance that keeps breaking the more you try to fix it is God's opportunity that you might praise him. When it might be when you're mistreated at work that God is giving you an opportunity, a major opportunity, not to sue, but to witness to Christ. I am different. This is what Paul and Silas are doing. They're praising God. And as they do, evidently, not only the prisoners are listening, but God is listening, as we see in verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were uh, unfastened. Um, And so this singing duet is so good that it literally brings the house down. Right? Okay? It's good, huh? Right? And so the earthquake hits, right? And it shakes. I mean, that's gotta be interesting, right? It's midnight, a couple guys are singing about this God you never heard of, and all of a sudden the earth starts to shake, and the doors fly open, and your cuffs fall off your wrists, and you're looking around saying, oh, this is interesting. Um, and I, I spent 22 years in earthquake country out in California. I mean, the ground is constantly moving under our feet, but I've never experienced an earthquake like this. It's like a surgical strike earthquake. Bam! Right on that prison. It's not gonna, bring the roof on their heads, but it's going to open doors and somehow release shackles and stocks. And there they all are released and everything's flying open. And evidently the prisoners not only have attention, but the jailer does as well. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul is going to arrest his hand from this voice from the darkness. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We are all here. Everyone is here. None of the prisoners have left. There is no fear for you. And so this man calls for lights, as we see in verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. Isn't that interesting? He fell down before Paul and Silas. This this jailer who treated them as lowly prisoners is now on his knees before them. And he asked this question, perhaps the best question ever asked. Verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I was teaching this passage to my children uh, last night, and I, I said, okay, we're going to stop there. What's the answer to this question? What must I do to be saved? It's an interesting question because he's not afraid of, for his life. I mean, the prisoners are all there. He's, he's not going to get in trouble. No one's attacking him. What does he mean? What must I do to be saved? Well, it seems to me that he is in awe of Paul's God. That if this God will rip apart a prison to let his preacher free, that he wants to know how can he be saved from this God, which is a good question because God is wrathful against all who persist in their sin. What must I do to be saved? How how do you answer that? Do good? Keep the Ten Commandments? Let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Well, friends, it's much more simpler than that as we see in verse 31. And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I tell you this morning, if you are here and you are not a Christian based upon not my thoughts or ideas or even aspirations, but based upon the authority of God's word, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved from hell and wrath. I don't care what your deeds are. I don't care if you're a good guy or a bad guy. In fact, I'll tell you, you're a bad guy. We're all bad guys. The point is there's one good guy. His name is Jesus, and he dies for all the bad guys. And if the bad guys say, Jesus, I love you, I want to bow down before you, he, out of great goodness and mercy and grace, will save you. And this jailer heard those words, and he was saved that night. Do you see the transformation in his life? Verse 33, and he took them that same hour and has washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and his family. By the way, if you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, what do you do with that text? I think it's like 2 a.m. right now, by the way. The dawn has not risen. He believes in Christ. What does he do? He gets baptized. They fill the tub up at 3 a.m. in the morning. The first 
active obedience. Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He puts his faith in Jesus, and he gets baptized. And not only that, verse 34, then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. This jailer who just moments ago almost ran a sword through his belly is now rejoicing that his eternity is secured. God builds his church. He builds his church, doesn't he? I hear stories like this. And I hope when you hear stories like this, you realize that God is not only orchestrating events 2,000 years ago in Philippi, but he's orchestrating events in your life. I mean, think about the people that he put in your life and the circumstances that he put in your life in order to one day open your heart that you might believe in him. He's done that. He's continuing to do that here in Loudoun County and around the world. So the world constantly tried to stop him from building his church. You think about 2013, you think about all the ways America has created and legislated in order to stop the church of God. And he will not be stopped. His church will go from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and language. He will always have a people. His church will always grow. For Christ has declared, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not stop it. You may try to infiltrate it. You may try to persecute it. You may try to enculturate it. But I will not stop building my church. And because of his commitment to do so, you are a Christian and I am a Christian. He has opened our hearts that we might trust in him. Let us praise him for it. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is faithful to keep his promises, to build his church. And we thank you that this beautiful picture here in Philippi, how, how you would direct them and stop them and send visions to them and open hearts for them and cast out demons and send earthquakes because of your commitment to build the church. And you are no less committed today than you were in Philippi 2,000 years ago. You continue to do this work. I pray that we would join you. This church will be part of your kingdom building work. And that we would delight knowing how you have come and brought us into your church. And I pray for my friend here this morning, who perhaps, dear Lord, you're opening his or her heart even now. They feel this tug of faith in them. They feel longing for you. Perhaps this very moment they want to cry out saying, God, forgive me. I believe in Jesus. We do not give them the willingness to follow through on that desire. We do not open the, the mouth in their soul that they would cry out in silence right now. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross because I am a sinner. And there he paid for all of my sin. I believe God he rose three days later. I believe he's coming again. And I give him everything. Oh, would you call them to do that, Father? that they too, like this jailer, might be saved today and for eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.